Turn again in God's Word to Acts chapter 20, particularly at the end of the chapter when Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. We were hearing on Friday uh, of how it's sometimes difficult for ministers as they uh, pick what to settle on to preach. It's difficult at a communion time. It's difficult, particularly uh, for me at the moment, thinking of, of leaving you and what to preach. But I was drawn to this passage uh, due to the fact that Paul here is preaching a farewell sermon to the Ephesian elders. But even though I was drawn to it, I hesitated and still almost hesitate to preach it lest anyone misunderstand what I say. I'm not trying here to preach a biographical sermon about myself comparing myself uh, to be like Paul in any league similar to him. In fact, as we consider Paul's experience in Ephesus, to my own experience, there are many, many differences and many differences uh, to your own experience. For example, think about the circumstances of ministry in stored away compared to Ephesus. They're, they're completely different places. Both are port cities, but yet Ephesus is a, it was a great city. It was a large population because not only did it have a port, but it had land routes, roads off to the side that were major trade routes. And so the city flourished. It was a city that had one of the seven wonders of the world in it. And so pilgrims would come to the Temple of Diana, which was a huge edifice made out of marble. It was a place of great wickedness, of idolatry, of this pagan and superstitious religion. Uh, and so in those ways, of course, I don't need to spell it out, but it's very different to Stornoway. But also, it's different from our current experience, particularly of the fruit of the preaching of the gospel. Paul preached to the Jews until they had their hearts hardened. So then he went to the school of Tyrannus, and he taught there day by day for two whole years. And his time in Ephesus, short as it was, was marked by much fruit. He worked many miracles. People were amazed at what was done in the name of Paul and his God, the Lord Jesus. There was great conversion, even amongst the superstitious pagan idolaters. For remember that it was at Ephesus that the magicians burned their magic books as a fruit in keeping with repentance. They knew that this sorcery was incompatible with the gospel and with the Christian life. And so they burned these books costing 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, one piece of silver alone was a day's wage. So that is 50,000 days wages, 137 years salary. Bring it into our equivalent money, two and a half million pounds, something like that. These were costly books and yet they were willingly burned because Christ was more important. Paul saw the gospel transform many people's lives. He saw the gospel move mightily. And yet as we look around us today, what do we see? We see a time of barrenness, little fruit. So a very different in terms of what is produced. 
But also when we consider what the preaching of Paul provoked in Ephesus. Not only did it produce fruit, but it provoked opposition. There, there will always be opposition to the gospel. That's true. But the opposition that we face today tends to be more apathy uh, than, than active persecution. Yes, there are some who are atheists that write books uh, criticizing us. And there are some who mock us. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that personally. But yet, by and large, is it not the case that those who aren't believers tend to be apathetic? You would love a reaction from them, wouldn't you? You would love them just to say something. And yet they couldn't care less. You go to church if you want. But it has nothing to do with me. It was very different for Paul in Ephesus. Because remember there, there was that huge riot. Those people who made money from the idolatry stirred up the whole city so that Paul had to flee for his life. He speaks in verse 19 of our our chapter here of how there were tears and trials all due to the plotting of the Jews. That's not our experience. We have, as I say, the apathy. There's another difference. Uh, We see that Paul... Uh, his ministry in Ephesus was self-financed. He worked with his own hands so that he was not a burden to them. He says there in verse 33 and 34, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I'm in a different position, of course. I have been and I'm very thankful for a congregation that has supported my ministry, not just financially, but in many ways. But also there's another difference to highlight, and that was Paul's sense of the future. Paul had a sense of what was to happen to him after he left Miletus. He knew that as he went, verse 23, that in every city there would be chains and tribulations. He also knew in verse 25 that he would see these Ephesian elders no more. And then in verse 29, he had a sense also that the congregation would be unsettled when he left. Savage wolves would come in and they would disrupt. They would bring false teaching. Verse 30, they would speak perverse things to try to draw away the disciples He says, from among yourselves, these savage wolves will come. Paul sensed these three things in the future for himself and also for them. And of course, I have no sense of any of these things. I don't want anyone to take from what I'm saying here that I expect the congregation to go through any particular time of unsettling or that I'm predicting I will never see you again. I hope we will see each other. And I'll be able to come back here uh, and preach again. But also, uh, maybe some of you will come and visit us. So there are are certainly lots of points in which this chapter is very different from our own experience. And yet, there are common points, aren't there? Particularly this fact that it is a farewell sermon that Paul is preaching. He is saying goodbye to them. Uh, People that he has ministered to... In his experience, three years. For me, five years ministering to you. 
but also in the fact that Paul uses this sermon to acquit himself. Not for his own reasons, not for his own selfish reasons, but for the glory of God. And ultimately, as he says in 1 Corinthians 4, when it comes to the judging of ministers, it is the Lord himself who judges. It's particularly verses 26 and 27 that we're drawn to this evening. Look at those verses. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And that's the text that I have for you this evening. I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now there's an Old Testament background to this verse that we really must consider for a time. Why does Paul say that he's innocent of the blood of all men? Well, he takes this from Ezekiel. And if you would turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 3, you'll see this quite clearly. Because there Ezekiel is told by God that he is to be a watchman. He is to be looking out, he is to be guarding, and he is to be concerned about people's souls. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 16 Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give them no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness... And commits iniquity. And I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die. Because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin. And his righteousness which he has done. Shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless. If you warn the righteous man. That the righteous should not sin. And he does not sin. He shall surely live. Because he took warning, also you will have delivered your soul. So we see where Paul gets this phrase from, that he's innocent of the blood of all men. It's from this prophecy of Ezekiel. And we know how important a watchman would have been, particularly in the ancient cities. They would keep watch through the night to see if any enemies were coming. And they were responsible to sound an alarm. If they saw anything that was suspicious, they needed to report that. If they saw an army coming to invade, that had to be announced loudly. Because that watchman held people's lives in his hands. Lives were at stake. And spiritually speaking, 
souls are at stake. The watchman is to look out for the best interests of all people. The wicked sin. The wicked break God's commandment. And they deserve the righteous judgment of God. His just condemnation. If no warning is given to them by the minister, by the watchman, that person will die in their sin, in their iniquity. But notice who, at who's, who is responsible. From whom does the Lord require the blood? From the watchman's hand. Yes, that person sinned. Yes, they committed iniquity. Yes, they're responsible. Yes, they will be condemned. But the watchman is particularly guilty for his sin in not warning. But there's another example. What if that wicked man is warned and he still does not turn from his sin? In other words, the consequence is the same. That person still perishes in their iniquity. They still go to a lost eternity, whether they've been warned or not. But the difference is that the watchman is innocent. Blood is not required from his hands. In fact, he has delivered his own soul. You may say, well, what's the difference? He's done his duty. He's warned, but his warning was not heeded. But at least his conscience is clear that he has done the right thing. And notice as we read it there in Ezekiel, that it wasn't just to the unconverted. It wasn't just to the wicked that that warning was to be given, but also to the righteous, also to those who were professing faith, to those who had begun to walk in the right way and yet were turning away from it. The warning goes to both, the unconverted and those who profess faith and yet seem to be turning away. For a watchman to sleep on duty would be a grave sin. For a watchman to be awake and to see the danger that is coming and to say nothing, that is far worse, isn't it? The the same message comes in Ezekiel chapter 33 and it uh, it shows us that it, it wasn't just Ezekiel as an individual who was to be a watchman, but that anyone who signs the Lord's warning is a watchman. And so that brings us having seen the Old Testament background, to see the practice of Paul. Paul, the watchman, who is able to say, I am innocent of the blood of all men. In other words, Paul, as a watchman, has sounded the alarm. He has made it known the danger that there was for people's souls because of their sin. And if any did not believe, particularly we can think, of the Jews in Ephesus who hardened their hearts against Paul. We can think of those who remained in their sin and stirred up the city to a riot because they wanted Paul put away. These people had been warned and the blood would not be required from Paul but from themselves. Paul was a faithful (laughs) minister and so in a sense he can say to these Ephesians on your own head be it. If you're not converted, if you do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, if you do not repent of your sins, on your own head be it. You are responsible and not me. 
That was Paul's practice. Of course, we know that when he went to any city, he first preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Ephesus had had the privilege of three years of Paul's ministry there. But notice how he says in verse 18 that right from the very first day of those three years, they knew how he lived amongst them. They knew the manner of his life and of his ministry. And particularly, as we see in verse 20, he kept nothing back from them. He proclaimed it. He taught publicly as well as from house to house. If Paul knew there was some truth in the scripture that would benefit these people, he didn't hide it away from them, but he declared it that it would be known by them. What was the particular burden of his ministry? Well, we see in verse 21. He testified to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. These twin graces, repentance and faith, were the burden of his preaching. They were at the heart of what he called the people to do. And that's what a watchman does. Seeing the danger that men's souls are in, he calls them to repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't this the ministry of Christ? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did he not preach repentance and faith? Is that not what all ministers are to preach? Because repentance and faith are both necessary if you're to be saved from your sin. You can't go to heaven holding on to your sin and your idols. Nothing unclean can enter into heaven. You must turn from your evil doing in order to save your soul. You must also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For there's no other name by which you must be saved. There's no other way of access to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through him. Paul preached that, repentance and faith. We see there um, in verse 24, at the end of the verse, that he testified particularly to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what he preached. He made known the Lord's gracious offer of forgiveness, of justification and adoption. All the privileges of the gospel, Paul preached. Everlasting life, heaven, these things he made known, the freeness of this precious grace. And because Paul sounded the alarm to warn people of their danger, because he preached the remedy, repentance and faith, because he preached, preached the unsearchable riches of Christ's grace, he is able to acquit himself of any responsibility in bloodshed. That if anyone died in their sins, at least Paul could say that he had warned them. Simply, he preached the whole counsel of God. That, that's what he tells us there. Verse 26 leads in to verse 27. He says, I testify that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I've not kept it back from you, he says. What does it mean to preach the whole 
counsel of God. Well, of course, it doesn't mean to preach the secret will of God, because none of us know the secret will of God. The secret will, these things belong to God, what he has planned to do, things that are future events hidden from us. No one can preach these things, but what is revealed belongs to us and to our children. And so Paul preached the revealed will of God. That is, he preached the scriptures. And he preached, we can say here, the whole counsel of God. That does not mean that Paul preached everything that there is to know from the scriptures. For we know that the scriptures are deep and rich. And even for those of you who are older saints, a whole lifetime of studying the scriptures. Have you reached the bottom of the well? Is there not deeper? Is there not more to learn about the Lord? Are there not uh, things that you're still wondering about? In fact, the more you grow in grace, the less you seem to know about the Lord. It's really, it's not that you're knowing less, but you feel like you know less. Maybe it's because you're realizing there are more questions than the answers that you have. You see, there's more to study. That's why we're to meditate upon the Word of God day and night. Paul could not definitively preach every single thing there is to know about God. Because God is infinite. A whole lifetime of searching out the scriptures. It would not even yield that. Nor does preaching the whole counsel of God mean that Paul necessarily preached from every verse of the scripture. Of course, in Paul's day, the scriptures weren't complete. There was still... Uh, the New Testament being written. Paul Paul hadn't even finished writing all his letters. Uh, Revelation had not occurred. This book of Acts was not written. Maybe even some of the Gospels were not written by this time. So Paul would not have preached through all these things. Uh, Even if to preach through the whole of the Old Testament in three years would be a difficult task in order to do it justly in such a short time. But nevertheless, he can still say that he preached the whole counsel of God. He preached God's revealed will for everlasting life, for salvation. In other words, he preached the gospel. It was clear to all the way to be saved. He preached the wide range of doctrines. Take his epistles. They're not sermons, but they're examples of Paul's teaching. And we can see there the wide range of doctrines that he teaches. He touches on all the subjects that it's possible for us to study. In this way, Paul taught the whole counsel of God. The wide range of doctrine. The wide ranges of Christian experience. He applied the preaching, not just to one category of people, but to all categories of people. The converted and the unconverted. Men and women and children servants and their masters. Paul addressed all individually. And so he preached widely. He preached many doctrines. He counseled. Uh, And of course, as you preach through the scriptures, as you hear the scriptures, doctrines arise quite naturally, don't don't they? Uh, They come out as, as we work through the Bible, reading it even, privately in our homes. Don't we find that it addresses situations. There may be times in your life that something happens and you think, I need to go 
and, and find somewhere in the Bible that addresses this thing that's happening in my life. Uh, and that may be the case. But there are other times, are there not, when that happens, and simply through your normal course of reading through the Scripture, the very passage that it was planned for you to read that day, it already addresses the situation. Or the passage that the minister has planned to preach on, that naturally addresses your issue. Or the next psalm that it's due for you to sing at home in worship, that psalm speaks to you and addresses the very thing you were concerned about. The Lord does this. Isn't it amazing? As, as a great physician, that he has so prescribed all things that they fall out precisely when they're meant to. But notice, not only did Paul declare the whole counsel of God, but he's very clear here in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, there could be a temptation not to preach the whole counsel of God. There are times, and ministers understand this, there are times when the temptation is great not to say something that should be said. Not to say something that you believe the passage is addressing, lest someone be offended. And yet Paul did not hold back in preaching this whole counsel of God. In saying this, Paul is not saying that he was a perfect preacher. We know that Paul's epistles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they were infallible and inerrant. But that does not mean that every sermon that Paul preached was infallible and inerrant. He was a gifted man, especially gifted by the Spirit of God. And yet even still, we we can be sure that his sermons would not have been perfect. It was said of him by his adversaries that his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. You see, his adversaries, they're using that against him. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But they felt the power of his letters. They felt the power of the the Spirit-inspired Word of God. But when he stood before them as a minister, they say his speech is contemptible and he's weak. Paul said of himself, he said of himself in, in 1 Corinthians that he did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He felt weak. He felt scared. There were times, I'm sure, that someone could have looked at his sermon and say, that wasn't right, you were weak there. I could see the fear in you before you went into the pulpit. You were trembling, saying these things. And yet Paul could acquit himself in that same passage because he had determined to know nothing amongst the Corinthians except for Christ and him crucified. See, there again, he was the watchman who had to sound the alarm that people's souls were in danger, and he did it. And therefore he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. We've seen the Old Testament background, and we've seen the practice of Paul, but that leads us then, thirdly, to consider the practice of gospel preachers today. 
ministers are not all like Paul. Some ministers are more gifted than others. And some ministries are more successful than others. We're told this in the scriptures. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. Nevertheless, despite the fact that the giftings of ministers are different, all ministers share in a common work, a common duty to warn souls of their danger. To warn them of the danger of the darkness, of everlasting torment, and the fire that cannot be quenched. Every minister has the duty to, to sign the alarm, to warn souls that they must repent and flee from the wrath which is to come, and to preach Christ as the only hope of salvation, to testify to the grace of God. And as Paul told Timothy, when ministers do this, He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Ministers save both themselves and those who hear them. You're responsible for your own soul. You're responsible for how you live your life. You're responsible for whether you submit to the gospel or not. But ministers have a responsibility not only for their own soul but also for the souls of others. And they are judged with a greater strictness. It's an awful thought to think of that. Awful in the sense of being a terrifying thought to be responsible for souls. And yet when a minister takes heed to the doctrine when a minister preaches the whole counsel of God When he makes known the grace of Christ, he can be acquitted before God, having saved his own soul, his own heart, as well as that of his hearers. Friends, in your midst, have you heard these things that Paul speaks of? Have you heard this sort of preaching? Has the alarm been sounded by the watchman? Have you heard of the danger your soul is in unless you are converted? Have you heard of the evil of sin? Have you heard of how sin brings condemnation from God? Have you heard of eternal death in hell? Have you heard of your own need, your personal need of forgiveness from sin? Have you heard the watchman point you to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation? Has Christ been offered to you in your hearing, in this very room? Indeed he has, friends. Time and time again, Christ has been offered to you. You've been encouraged to go to him. He's he's been offered freely, without money, and without price. You've been commanded by the scriptures to repent and to believe. To submit yourselves to the righteousness of Christ. You've been encouraged to consider your ways. To contemplate the state of your soul and where you are. Friends, the watchman has made his warning. 
He has sounded the alarm. And it is clear the danger that is before you if you will not turn from your wicked ways. Whether the warning is heeded or not is down to yourselves. But certainly the alarm has been raised. And so as Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Friends, things don't have to be left just like that. Simply saying that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Because as long as there is breath in you, as long as it's still called today, there is still an opportunity of responding to the gospel message. In Ezekiel 33, where it describes the watchmen and their duty, and how the Lord will require blood at the watchman's hand if they don't sound the alarm, and how blood will not be required if they do. It says there at the end of the chapter, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For some of you, tonight's sermon will be the last word you will hear me preach, perhaps for some time. Unless you come out tomorrow night to hear my final sermon. But friends, if that is the case, this is the last sermon you hear from me for quite some time. Let those last words be what is left ringing in your ears to go away and contemplate and to think upon. Because God says, turn, turn from your wicked ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Amen. Let's stand to pray. O Lord our God, what a solemn thought it is to think of the danger there is for the souls of those who are outside of Christ, for those who do not turn from their evil ways, for those who remain in their sins. O Lord our God, we pray that the warnings that come from this pulpit in the past and also in the future, that these will be heeded by all who listen, that the wicked would turn from their ways and turn to the Lord who can save them. O Lord our God, raise up in our day and generation faithful ministers of the word of God who will testify publicly to the grace of God in Christ and who have no need to be ashamed. O Lord our God, hear us and do for us mightily. Send your spirit into our midst to take weak and feeble words and to apply them with power to hearts and consciences. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll conclude with singing from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verses 7 to the end.
This psalm is addressed to nations, uh, in particular to kings and those in authority. But I think it does speak to us as individuals also. And it gives to us the great warning uh, of the watchman. That the Lord Jesus Christ holds a weighty rod of iron to dash in pieces those who rebel against him. The warning uh, comes verses 10 to the end. Now therefore kings, be wise. Be taught, ye judges of the earth. Serve God in fear. And see that ye join trembling with your mirth. Kiss ye the Son. That's Jesus. Kiss him. Kiss Jesus. Last in his ire ye perish from the way. If once his wrath begin to burn. Blast all that on him stay. That is, bless all that, uh, blessed are all that trust in him, that, that put their full weight upon him for, for their soul's safety. Blessed are those who trust in him and in him alone. So friends, hear the warning as it's sung here. Psalm 2, verses 7 to the end. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.